Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It's been quite a while since we've studied Talmud, Gemara together. And today we're going to pick up where we left off many, many months ago. Tom's Talmudish, for those who are wondering, is named in honor of a dear disciple of mine, Reb Tom Yaakov and Avraham Levi Adler, who unfortunately is no longer physically with us, but I'm sure that his neshama has joy in the classes that we continue to hold and in the Torah we continue to study together. So let's start off with some background. Before I begin, I, I want you to know that even if you've never studied Gemara before, I think you'll enjoy this class. Even if you haven't been following, and yes, this is episode 42, each one of these episodes really stand on their own. I'm going to assume that you're somewhat familiar with the story of Purim. After all, it's a mitzvah to listen to the Gansa Megillah, the whole story, twice each year, on the eve and then during the day of Purim. Unfortunately, many people don't really understand a word that's being said. And that's why classes like this are so important. When you come to Shul on Purim, and you have an inkling, an idea, of what's being read from the Bima, it helps you connect. It makes the mitzvah of listening to the Megillah much more meaningful. But perhaps far beyond enriching the mitzvah of listening to the Megillah, these classes give us a window into one of the most extraordinary narratives in the entirety of Jewish history. And because Purim celebrates a miracle, divine deliverance and salvation, in a way that it's non-overt, its lessons are easier to relate to. No, the heavens don't open up and the seas, they don't split open. Manna doesn't fall and miraculous waters don't materialize. But Hashem's ever-present providence is evident throughout the story. One of the things that we'll learn about tonight, besides clarifying the overt and simple elements of the story, which, when you think about them, don't really make much sense. But one of the things that we're going to discover is an incredible lesson in the meaning of betochen of trust in Hashem. Because trust in God doesn't mean that you throw your hands up and say, hey, I trust that God will do what has to be done. Maybe I'll do something, but that's about it. Esther is one of the most righteous people ever to walk the face of the earth. Despite her popularity and so many women named Esther, my own dear mother's name is Esther, the truth is that she remains in many ways an enigma. And it's only through classes like these that we can begin to appreciate the sheer brilliance 
and the extraordinary genius that was Esther Hamalka. So, with no further ado, let's get right into it. If you're watching on YouTube and you have any questions, you're welcome to post. I see some of you have already posted and it's good to see you. If you have questions about something I say tonight, please go right ahead and uh, just type in your question and I will periodically check the screen. Before we actually start to read the words of the Gemara, I want to just refresh your memories, just so where we are in the story. So Mordechai, the great Rebbe of the Jewish people, seeks out Esther, and he has a message for her. He says, there's genocide being plotted against the entire nation. She says, that's awful. What do you want me to do? Mordechai says, you? <laughs> You're it. You need to go to Achashverosh. Esther says, you've got to be kidding. Let's remember that this is a monarch who removed his wife's head from her shoulders because she rankled him. She disobeyed his orders. She says, I haven't been called in a very long time. Trespassing on his inner space when he's in one of his gloom and doom moods, that's a death sentence. I'll end up under the guillotine. Mordechai says, Esther, do you think it's for naught that you've come to this position? Do not imagine for a moment that you will walk away from this. This is your chance. This is your moment, your opportunity to do the right thing and bring about salvation for Am Yisrael. Very reluctantly, Esther agrees and accepts the mission. But first, she says, would you do me a favor and fill the proverbial bank account before we write this check? That is to say, if the Jewish people have earned divine enmity for their terrible behavior, well, then in that case, nothing I do is going to be successful. First, we need to be sure that Am Yisrael returns to Hashem, does tshuva. And when they will resuscitate their dormant souls, when they'll experience a sense of revitalized Yiddishkeit, rejuvenation, then I know I'll be successful. Esther asks that the entire nation fast for three days. Now, obviously, there's no time to get the word out. We're talking about the people of Shushan, who were also the primary culprits. Mordechai gathers 22,000 schoolchildren. He's teaching them Torah. Esther says, I'm going to be fasting too. It's the third day. Taking her life into her own hands, Esther sets off for the palace. There's a lot of drama along the way especially as she arrives at the final hallway that enters into the throne room. She feels the presence of the Shekhinah has departed from her. We learned a lot about that in the previous episode. Esther then enters the king's inner chamber. And miracle upon miracle unfolds. The Talmud documents them and we learned about it previously. And that brings us to today's class.
So if you're following along in the Gemara itself, and of course I encourage that, Mesechet Megillah, Daf Tezvav, it's tractate Megillah, which speaks about, right, the mitzvah of Purim, page 15 of the large folio pages in the Gemara, and it's 15b. And because I know that some of you are fond of the Art Scroll edition, and you used to like when I called up page numbers, I'm going to give you a page number. So in the Art Scroll edition, it's 15b. Fifteen B two at the very bottom. Okay, so the Gemara told told us about the miraculous extension of the scepter and the way Esther touches the scepter. Sounds kind of chauvinistic. Oh, it actually is. There's nothing holy about this guy. He's kind of a monster, actually. But at any rate, instead of being infuriated, as he should have been, he's enchanted. He's delighted to see Esther. And he's very concerned because she doesn't look well. Well, she hasn't eaten for three days. And so the Gemara says, quoting the Pasuk, the verse of the Megillah. This is found in the fifth chapter, in the third verse. Now what's interesting is that the Gemara is going to be sewing two verses together. Because if you read carefully, you see it's talking about Pasagimel, but you'll see from the end that he kind of jumps forward to verse 6. And the Gemara conflates the two Pesukim, and we'll talk about that soon. The Gemara says, The king said to Esther, Hamalka the queen, What's your request? What is it that you need? Just tell me. It could be up to half the kingdom and it'll be done. This is repeated by Ahasuerus a second time. It shows up in the Megillah, right here in the throne room. The king sees Ahasuerus. He extends his royal scepter. She touches the edge of the scepter, the tip of the scepter. And then the king speaks. She doesn't say a word. In the actual Megillah, it says, The king said, What is it with you? You don't look well. And what do you want? What's your request? You can ask for up to half the kingdom and it'll be given to you. That's not the way we read the verse in the Gemara. And there is an opinion that the Gemara has a slightly different way of reading the verses. And we should just like quote one of the verses the way it's found in the Megillah. But... The thing is that the Gemara is precise. And this is the girsa that's been preserved. In verse 6, the king turns to Esther, the Mishtehayayin, in that first little dinner party that she arranged. And he says, Masha'elosech, what is it that you're asking? Umabakoshosech, and what is your request? 
Ad up till half the kingdom, and it shall be done. So here's the funny thing. I mean, this, the Gemara doesn't even ask this question necessarily. But I think we should ask this question, because the Gemara does answer it. Here's a man who's not particularly kind to women, including his own wives. You know the story. I mean, Ahasuerus had this grand ball. He was kind of hammered. And he insisted that his beautiful wife Vashti show up and do a, you know, I don't know, a striptease or something like that. It's not going to be very respectful for the queen. She refuses. Good grief. Could you expect anything else? Not that she was a superbly righteous individual. She was a horrible individual, but still. Are you kidding or something? You want me to get up there and do what in front of all your friends? Achashverosh is infuriated. And he has her killed. Just like that. Then this misogynist, absolute maniac, has all the girls in the kingdom, at least the ones he thinks are attractive, show up and spend the night with him. And he'll choose. I mean, this, this behavior is it's disgusting. It's shocking. It would never fly in today's day and age. Esther's terrified to go into that throne room for a good reason. She knows this megalomaniac. She knows what he's capable of doing. Miraculously, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't shout at his guards, off of their head. He says, yeah, Esther, what's up? I'm glad to see you. So good that you came. You know, I was thinking of calling. Instead, he says, what is it that you need? I'll give you half the kingdom. Really? Half the kingdom? Up till half the kingdom. I mean, I still have to be the king. I'll give you 49% of the company. So we're worth a couple of billion. 49% is yours. My, oh my, that's uh, kind of generous. Achashverosh is feeling really chipper today. If you're thinking it doesn't make sense, <laughs> I'm not going to disagree. It doesn't make sense. What was he thinking and what was he saying? Well, the Gemara is kind of bothered by this. And we have a dispute as to what exactly the Gemara is saying. Now, it's not clear. But the Gemara's response or its analysis of that verse reads something like this. Chatsi hamalchus. So, um, just half the kingdom. malchus, eh? He was really generous. He was going to give her half, you know, up half. I'm not going to give her the whole kingdom. He wasn't going to lay down and die or give her the whole kingdom or make her into the monarch and make himself into the consort. But half the kingdom will give her. At least the way the Marsha understands this question, it's as reasonable to expect Ahasuerus to give away the whole kingdom as it is to expect for him to give away half the kingdom. You say, well, that's not reasonable. He's not going to give his crown away. And half his kingdom he would? It's interesting that Rashi doesn't comment here. Now, there is a girsa, there is a version in the Gemara where it just states, Ad chatsi hamalchut 
And the Gemara analyzes and says that actually this was a euphemism, not to be taken literally. But again, the version in our Gemara is precisely that. Ad so the Gemara says what he's really saying is not something which gets in the way of my kingdom. Esther, you can have whatever you want. You want new jewelry, you want a new wardrobe, you can have a Rolls Royce. You can't get in the way of my politics. You know, I'm the king. So you can make a request. As long as it has nothing to do with monarchy, sovereignty, majesty, and my dominion. So you can have whatever you want. I get you any toys you want. You can have as much fun as you want. I can build you a new palace. Just don't get involved in political affairs. So the Gemara then says, it's a, a message delivered in code. It's not to be taken at face value. That kind of makes sense. Achashverosh says, I'll give you whatever you want. Don't meddle in affairs of state. Rashi says something very interesting. All right, somebody's saying where you can find the Pasuk. It's in the Megillah. So Rashi says this. The lo davar shachotzetz v'malchot does not mean what I just said. But it's much more pointed. Rashi says, binyan habayit. Achashverosh is talking about the building of the home. Whose home? God's home. This is about the base of Migdash. If you remember, or you'll go back to some of the earliest episodes, Achashverosh's party was made to celebrate his ascension to the throne and the loss of future hope for the Jewish people. Achashverosh has essentially usurped the throne of Medea, the throne of Persia and Medea. They have sacked the monarchy and stolen the throne from Babylon. Malchut Bavel. Nebuchadnezzar, the evil monarch who destroyed the first Beit HaMikdash. This is his empire. This is his empire that's being remade by Achashverosh, but he essentially stepped into those shoes. They're very superstitious. They knew about these 70 years of Bavel. They miscalculated. This was discussed in great detail by the Gemara. 
And Achashverosh comes to the conclusion that the 70 years is definitely past another miscalculation. He makes a party. Every one of his predecessors who celebrated the demise of the Hebrews or the Jews or the Israelites forever didn't fare well. But Achashverosh doesn't suffer any divine retribution. In order to demonstrate his certainty that the Jewish people will never rise again, that they will never re return to the land of Israel and they will never again fill the world with their splendor from a national homeland, Ahasuerus then has the gall to use the raiments of the high priest in vessels of the Beit HaMikdash, something that everybody afraid, was afraid of prior. Nothing happens to him. Ahasuerus at this point is quite certain that he's right on the money. It's done. Strange as it may sound, this anti-Semite, and he was a big anti-Semite, he was extremely, extremely superstitious. He believed that the Jewish people were not an ordinary nation inasmuch as he was ready to massacre them all. He was afraid of them. He was afraid of the God of Israel. And it seems to have been an obsession of his to make sure that the Jewish people never rise again. It's from this very world capital that the construction of the Beis HaMikdash has been stalled, stopped. According to some opinions in the Medrash, Mordechai moved to Shushan to lobby the government to allow for the reconstruction of the second Beit HaMikdash. Ahasuerus knows that Esther has some kind of relationship with Mordechai. She knows where he came from. She knows he grew up in that house. She doesn't know what their relationship is. She doesn't know that Esther's Jewish. Esther has this request all of a sudden. She's never asked for anything. So in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh no, somebody got to her. Somebody's played with her mind, and now she wants the base amygdala. She says, listen here, I'll give you whatever you want, but not something which will get in the way of my monarchy. And he saw his monarchy as built on the rubble of Israel and the forgotten hopes of the Jewish people. By the way, he wasn't entirely wrong. It's his own son that he fathers through Esther, Darius II, that gives permission for the Beis HaMikdash to be built. And eventually, the sun does set on the Persian Empire as Alexander the Great sacks the entire kingdom and makes an even bigger empire. The Greek Empire eventually falls into the hands of the Romans, and the rest, as they say, is history. So Rashi says, "Davar shachotzotz lamalchos, binyan habayit shuhu beemtza shalolam." This is a reference to the home, which occupies a central, kind of a, almost a dividing line, the middle, of the world. Kidi amrinon b'seder yuma, as we say in 
tract at Yoma, and this is found on page 54, side B. Even shetia shemimenu nishtata olam. That in the Holy of Holies, there was what's called the foundation stone. This was said to be the first particles of nuclear physics, of material that ever formed in the globe with that stone. The rest of the world kind of develops around it. It's got to begin with something, the first particle, first physical particle. That's the Evan Shatiya. That's the stone that was in the Holy of Holies. That's the stone some people think has a big golden dome built over it called the Dome of the Rock. I personally very, very much doubt, and I'm fairly certain that's not the stone we're talking about. But at any rate, this is the stone that has fueled people's imaginations. And the point then is this. Achashverosh is concerned about affairs of state, but specifically he's concerned about the Beit HaMikdash. He's telling Esther, like, there's some things you'd better not ask for. Why, why does Rashi say that? Why does it have to be the case? I mean, the Gemara goes ahead and says, Umay nihu. And what is that? What's he alluding to? The Gemara says, Binyan Beit. Amigdash. Achashver said, there's one thing I'm not going to let you do, and that is have permission granted to the Jews to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. So Rashi has no choice. He's got to explain it this way. So what's going on over here? What, what is Rashi giving us this whole business about the Beit HaMikdash being in the middle, something that gets in the way? So Maharsha talks about this quite a bit. And yes, that is correct as, as being posted. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and then 3 to 6, if you want to be precise. So the Maharsha says this. He says, there is an opinion that we should read. What does Chatzia Malchus mean? As long as it doesn't get in the way. But from the fact that it says in our Gemara, half but not the whole. So there seems to be something the Gemara is getting at. Marsha says this whole business of half the kingdom doesn't make any sense. It's not the way. Which king gives half his kingdom away? That's patently ridiculous. He says, And he gave it to his wife. Hey, this is Persia of antiquity. Persia of antiquity, where one of the laws that he wrote into being stated... Every man is king in his castle. And every woman has to be reminded of that. This is chauvinism on steroids. Women had no rights in the Persian Empire. Achashverosh himself had that written into law. 
So the same man that writes into law that a woman has no rights is about to give his wife half the kingdom. Sorry, up to half the kingdom, 49% of the kingdom. Of course that makes no sense. He had to have been saying something else. That's the premise that the Gemara comes from. And Marsha is just showing you that we understand it can't be literal. It had to have been euphemism. It had to have been some kind of discussion about something other than what it sounds like. Okay, what is that? So the Marsha says, you're asking for something, and I don't know what it is you want, he says, but make sure it isn't something which half the kingdom, so to speak, relies on. Something which will have the kingdom. What'll have the kingdom? What'll split the kingdom? What'll divide the kingdom? And the Marsha says, this is what Rashi's telling us. Rashi's telling us that this was kind of the world's center. So if Achashverosh was called Moshel Bekipah, he had an empire that spanned the globe. The word keeper means a dome, like the dome of the globe. He spanned the dome of the globe. So if he spans the dome of the globe, obviously it's a euphemism, but that's the terminology that's being used. The terminology that fits for Yerushalayim would then be the middle. If his empire is global, then the center of the globe is Yerushalayim. If Yerushalayim is reconstituted, it will no longer be a part of Ahasuerus's empire, and that will, in effect, fracture his empire. It's interesting that until this day, in English, the area of Eretz Yisrael is referred to as the Middle East. The Mediterranean Sea divides between the continents of Africa and Europe. And right in between Africa, Europe, and Asia is the Middle East. If the Beis English is built, it means the reestablishment of Jewish dominion. Ahasuerus can't hope to have a united kingdom if there is an independent kingdom smack in the middle. This is a problem. The country has to be subdued. It has to remain subservient. Ahasuerus knows that the building of a Beis Hamikdash doesn't bode well for those political or monocarchal aspirations. And that's why he uses the words ad chatsi, which doesn't mean half, but rather until the having of the kingdom. Marsha himself says, well, if that's the case, then why doesn't it just say chatsi hamalchus? He says, because what Ahasuerus was essentially worried about was not only the having of the kingdom, but the having of the kingdom because, in his words, quoting the Targum, this would lead to Yehudoi, the Dochil Anan Men Yehudoi. I'm afraid of the Judeans, the Jews. Dilma Yimrudun. This will give them a shot in the arm. 
a boost of inspiration. It will enable them to revolt. And therefore, it'll divide the kingdom. So Ahasuerus has to keep his Jews in check. He's afraid of the Jewish people. You know, when I was learning this Gemara, I was thinking about the fact that the world continues to be obsessed with Israel and Jerusalem. Can you imagine another country legislating to a country across the ocean, telling them where to build houses? Telling them where to establish their capital? That would never fly. <laughs> but it seems perfectly natural for the whole world to be able to dictate the terms to Israel and tell them where they can or can't live. The official claim is that they're worried about, quote, human rights, which is, of course, a red, her a red herring. It's nothing but anti-Semitism cloaked in these sheep's clothing representing brotherhood, friendship, non-colonialism, indigenous rights, mixing people of color for good measure, or what have you. But these very same countries somehow lose their voices when it comes to persecuted Muslims in China. And they don't really care with what's going on, for example, in Crimea. These aren't really important, but a living room in Jerusalem with the expansion of somebody's porch, now that is an international affair. So it hasn't changed. It's actually quite fascinating how the world is still obsessing over Israel. And knowing the way the geopolitics are today, it shouldn't be hard for us to understand where Ahasuerus was coming from. Somehow, he knew that a Besamigdash that rises spells his downfall. Now here's something interesting. And I don't know if we should take this literally or not, but I'm going to share it with you. And I'll give you my take. The commentaries that I'm going to share with you are both of 19th century extraction. So it's not Rishonim. I don't know that it's Torah Messinai. I don't know. They were great scholars, brilliant people. They had insight. The Lushmaya Bilimudim, who I believe was the preacher in Vilna, was the chief darshan, kind of like a, you know, he gave the sermons. He didn't give the halachic rulings. It seems uh, from uh, copious evidence today that he actually became a Chabad chassid, a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, or the Mittler Rebbe. At any rate, he was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. And he says, you know, there's a Gemara in Baba Basra. The Gemara of Baba Basra says that the Beit HaMikdash is only built by the powers of a monarchy. So, Ahasuerus, maybe he was kind of aware of this. And he erroneously assumed that if a Beis HaMikdash would be built, it would necessitate or spell the rise of a Jewish monarchy. Tragically, he was wrong. A Jewish monarchy does not rise in Israel, although there is a man named Zerubbabel who is 
a suited, I mean, he's a Sion of the house of David, a righteous person. But sadly, it doesn't work out that way. And after the miracles of Hanukkah, when we finally did have real dominion over ourselves, and we could and should have reconstituted the Davidic monarchy, the very same heroes who fought against the Assyrian occupier suddenly were enchanted with the idea of power. The very same families of Kohanim, the Hashmonaim, who courageously and devotedly defended the Jewish people, refused to let go of the throne, power. And in the end, it doesn't go well. That family is decimated. There are no descendants of Hashmonaim. And a non-Jew named Herod assumes the throne. And eventually, we have full Roman domination and occupation of Israel until the destruction of the second Besamekdash. So at any rate, Ahasuerus is wrong, but his ideas aren't wrong. How does the Besamekdash, by the way, the second time around get built? It's under the dominion of a monarch, Ahasuerus' own son, a Jewish king of Persia who doesn't acknowledge his Jewishness, but his mother was a very, very holy woman. Her name is Esther. Darius is the one who allows the second base of Megdish to rebuild. And since, now this doesn't mean that Achashverosh was a big Talmud Chochem and that he knew what the Gemara in Bava Basra says, but if the Gemara says it, it's not unreasonable for Achashverosh to have some kind of idea in his head that Beit HaMikdash, monarchy, dominion, they come together. In what seems to be a far greater reach, another great Lithuanian scholar from the 19th century who wrote a sefer called Ein Eliyahu, he suggests something almost fantastical, at least to me. He says, you know, every seven years on the festival of Sukkot that follows the year of Shemitah, when the fields of Israel lie fallow, it's a mitzvah for all the Jewish people to be gathered together in the Beit HaMikdash. This mitzvah is called hakel, which means congregate, or cause to congregate. Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon had a son named Rechavim. Rechavim listened to some very bad advice. He broke the backs of the people with exorbitant taxation. And eventually, there's a rebellion. The northern kingdom seeds from the southern kingdom. Yeravam ben Nevat is their new king. He begins his monarchical career as righteous. And then, he makes a terrible left turn. He's considered to be one of the arch-villains of Jewish history. Chota Hechti. He sinned grievously and caused many others to sin. What did he do? Well, he built a temple to worship idols. Why? Because he knew that when the mitzvah of Hakel would happen in the Beit HaMikdash, and he'd show up, Rehovam would be sitting, and he'd have to stand. And he'd lose his standing. Because only Malchi based David are allowed to ever sit 
in the Azra, in the outer courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash. He knew this. So Yeravim decides not to allow people to go to the Beis HaMikdash. He says, I'll build you a nice Beis HaMikdash. I'll build you a great, fantastic temple. I'll make you two golden calves, which he did. And he led the people astray. So the Ein Elio says, aha, you see? So Achashverosh knew that Yeravim seeds from the union of the Jewish people. And he turns away the hearts of it because he couldn't sit there. What if he showed up at Hakel? He couldn't sit. So I don't really know what he's talking about because a non-Jewish person wouldn't be allowed into the Azara altogether. And why would Achashverosh come to Hakel? It's like saying, you know, Achashverosh is like, I need a seat for the high holidays. You do? For what? It doesn't make any sense to me, actually. But maybe what Daniel Leo is just saying, is not, it's not literal. He's giving you a figure of speech or an example. He said the point is that there was this persistent rumor, if you will, this awareness that somehow Beis HaMikdash and Davidic monarchy go hand in hand, as evidence from the story of Yeravim. So this is, you know, it's kind of, you know, a little bit of all this together. And the Beis HaMikdash is being strategically located in the middle, and if a, a, a Jew, a Beis Hamikdash rises, a Jewish monarchy rises, and if a Jewish monarchy rises, then the kingdom is split because it's very strategically located. It's the Evin Shasia. It's right in the middle of the world, and you know it actually is. It's at the crossroads of the world, civilized world of then, and as such, as such, Achashverosh doesn't want the Beis Hamikdash to be built. So he says, Ad doesn't say, oh, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you everything but the kingdom. He doesn't say that. He says, up to Chatzi, up to half the kingdom. And what he means is, I don't want to divide the kingdom. And he specifically is referring to Beis Hamikdash because this was the only thing he could imagine. What else could Esther want? She has everything a queen could want. As far as he's concerned, she's married to a fantastic husband. She has endless money and pleasures. She lives in a beautiful place. What could she want? What could she possibly be lacking? Unless there's somebody who got to her. She seems really serious about this. She seems kind of like, you know, to be on a mission. Which, of course, she was. <laughs> but somehow, Achashverosh never imagined that she knew about the genocide. Why not? Well, because as we have already learned in previous episodes, this was a state secret. Nobody knew about it. There wasn't a single shred of evidence. Nothing was put into writing. Yes, Haman had sent letters, but uh, letters that were not exactly clear. How does Esther know? Because Mordechai knew. How did Mordechai know? Because Mordechai got a prophetic communication. So there's no way that Achashverosh is thinking, oh, she's uh, coming to plead for the Jewish people now. They don't even know what's coming down the pike, as far as he's concerned. I shared in previous episodes that the Nazis, may their name be blotted out for eternity, never actually left orders for the gas chambers in writing. 
these diabolical monsters wrote that the Jewish people would be taken to Auschwitz for what they called in paper Sonderbehandlung, special handling for the cargo. Eichmann denied any knowledge of what was really going on. And anyway, he was just carrying out orders, he said. That's the way it was with Haman, too. So Ahasuerus never could have imagined that. And the only thing that he could think of is who's on a mission that would get through to Esther. Oh, well, he kind of knows Mordechai. He says, oh, I figure this is what it is. That Mordechai guy. Yeah, he's a senator. He's got some kind of connection. I heard he was hanging around the palace. Oh, that's what it is. He's a smart fellow, wily fellow. He says, Esther, whatever you want. No base on Migdash, okay? Let's just stay away from that. So this is the entrance. And Esther has to have understood exactly what he meant. Because Achashverosh was talking to Esther. And if he's talking in riddles, it's because he knows she'll get it. And that brings us to the major focus of this class. Esther's invitation for dinner with the devil. You know why I think this is um, a very important part of the narrative? Because Esther doesn't really have a plan. How could she have a plan? She, she doesn't know how she's going to be able to deal with the situation. Mordecai didn't tell her what to do. He said, you need to figure this out. She said, you go and pray and fast. She didn't even know if she was going to be alive at this point. And then the first thing he says to her is, hey, Esther, I'm really concerned about you. You don't look well. You can have whatever you want, but nothing that's going to get in the way of, you know, my kingdom. Don't be asking anything for the Jews now. Imagine how Esther must have received this message. Like a ton of bricks. Like an ice bucket poured over her. It's almost like somehow he put the pieces together. He knows that Mordechai sent her a message. He's alluding to the Beis Migdash. And he's telling her, don't even ask, don't even go there. So she's trying to formulate a plan of how she's going to ask Ahasuerus to save the Jews. And before she can say anything, he says, hey, you can have whatever you want, but let's not talk about the Jews. I'd like to suggest, just a humble suggestion, that when we stop and think about what Esther was facing, it's just the things that are happening and the sang there, calm, cool, collected, insightful, and strategic way Esther responds, it should blow us away. <laughs> this was 
an unbelievable woman. Really unbelievable. She doesn't lose herself. She came for a reason. Achshverosh says, not the Jews. Without batting an eyelash, she somehow knows what to say next. So what does she say? She said, oh, I'd like to invite you to dinner. Really? You had to come yourself <laughs> to invite me for dinner? Yavah ha-melech Yeah, yeah, it's a personal thing. I wanted you and Haman to come el ha I want you to come for dinner, make a little party for you. Haman is the man who is the architect of the final solution. Which she now knows carries the objective of lahashmid, lahareg, laabed, eskol hayehudim. The absolute, utter destruction of Jewish people and Jewish life in one day. A veritable Hitler. And instead of asking the king, say, uh, my dear husband, can you put your uh, prime minister out to pasture because he wants to kill me? You think we can do something about that? You think maybe we can rescind this decree? I think it's a little bit harsh and unfair. I'm not asking for Jerusalem. I don't want to be something this. Just, just don't have a state-sponsored genocide against my people, is what she should have said. Especially because she fully expected to be killed. A miracle's happened. This crazy man is somehow enchanted. He says, all right, no Beis HaMikdash, but anything else. She didn't ask for Beis HaMikdash. He just offered you exactly what you asked for. I mean, this, this plan couldn't have been more effective. The iron's hot. Strike. Esther's like, well, you know, I'd like you to come for dinner. What in heaven was she thinking? Why didn't she make the request that she eventually makes right now? The Gemara asked this question. Tonu Rabbanon, our rabbis, returned to this story again and again and were looking to appreciate and understand what was this Jewish heroine thinking? What's going on here? Ma rasa Esther shazimna is Haman. Why would you invite the devil to dinner? And here, the Gemara is going to do something very unusual. The Gemara is going to give us reason upon reason. Different kinds of reasons. Fascinating reasons as to what Esther might have been thinking. Says the Gemara, we're now continuing. Page 15, side B, for those who are joining us. The Pasuk says, 
that they should come for dinner. And the Gemara says, why were you making this invitation? Rabbi Eliezer Oimer, Rabbi Eliezer said, Esther took her cue from the book of Psalms. Pachim Tomnoli, that this represents a trap, a snare being prepared. Pachim Tomnoli, she was preparing a trap for him. She wanted him to come to dinner, and she knew that she'd entrap him this way. Where'd she get that idea from? From the book of Psalms. Shenemar, for it is written in Psalm 69, verse 23. May their table serve as an ensnarement, a trap. The Pasuk of Tilim that speaks about a poch. If you take a look in the Mitzudasian, he says, a poch is a reshet. It's a web. It's like a, a netting. You know, you get caught, stuck. The Mitzudas David explains that this request that David HaMelech, King David, made, Yehishol Chanam, let their table be before them, lefoch, as an ensnarement. King David is praying for retribution to be brought against evil people. And so he says, let the punishment be that the table that's set before them, it'll be for them as an obstacle, a stumbling stone, a trap. Right, Salaimar, what King David means to say, says the Mitsudas is, that which they think is delightful, a party, will turn into bad. Now, I want to I want to say this. Esther was a very righteous woman. It's a big 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 tzitkanis. We don't know of women in antiquity being highly learned. We don't know. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible. We, don't, we know of very, very few. There was a woman named Chulda. She was a Nevi'ah. She was a prophetess. She taught Torah. But as a rule, we have no information of Esther being highly educated, per se. But one thing we can be pretty sure about is that she was proficient with the book of Tillam. I mean, the book of Psalms was the prayer book of the Jewish people. It still is the primary source of prayers. But throughout the ages, including a large, large portion of Jewish history, where women were not learned, they were very much engaged in prayer. There were many pious women who would recite the entire book of Tehillim on a daily basis. It's extremely reasonable to assume that Esther was proficient in the book of Tillam. In fact, I would be shocked if she didn't know the book of Tehillim by heart. So what was she thinking? Well, she was thinking along the lines of King David's prayers. She said, King David prays for, 
She's got to ensnare this guy, Haman. He's dangerous. How will she ensnare him? She intuitively thinks about the words of Tehillim, the words of Psalms. Incidentally, we learned that she was reciting Psalm 22 as she was walking into the throne room. She didn't have a prayer book with her. So she kind of lifts this idea right out of the book of Psalms, which is prophetic prayer. This is exactly what I need to do, she says. I just need to uh, do the, the Tehillim-infused thing. I came to entrap Haman. What better way than to bring him to a party? So you're saying, what was she thinking? Abelias says, what was she thinking? She was thinking like a righteous Jewish woman thinks. She took a look at Scripture, look at the Pasuk, and said, this is exactly what the Pasuk says. She doesn't have a plan. She doesn't know how she's going to be able to bring Haman down. She knows she has an objective to save the Jewish people. She's got to get this decree rescinded. I got to get him to a table. Because, because he shulchanim lefnehem lefach. That's a no-brainer. That's the teaching of Rebbe Eliezer. So now we know that Esther intuitively thinks along the lines of the book of Psalms, the book of Tehillim. I see somebody saying, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Hold on to that thought, Barry, because <laughs> we, are actually, we are actually going to be saying something like that very soon. One thing at a time. Rabbi Yeshua Oimer, Rabbi Yeshua says, Mi base of Viha, it was from her childhood. Now Esther is an orphan, so she had to have absorbed this lesson very early on. Mi base of Viha Lamda, she learned from her father's home. Now why does it say she learned from her father's home? So the base Halevi actually suggests that it's not reasonable to think that Esther was well read in the book of Proverbs. The truth is that even in today's day and age, when many, many, many Jewish men and women are pretty well versed in Judaism, I'd say that the verse we're about to read now is not known to most people. Although the spirit of these words is probably something that you've heard before. Probably quoted from a non-Jewish source without realizing that it actually says it right in the scripture. <laughs> Do you know that the term laughter is the best medicine is like lifted straight out of Proverbs? How do you kill your enemies best? I'm sure you've heard this idea, kill him with kindness. Yeah, that's a verse in the scripture. That comes from the Torah too. But how would Esther have known that? And how would it be at her fingertips? It's not like she had time to research this and to create a strategy. She's thinking literally on her feet. She's been praying and fasting. Her battery is literally depleted. She doesn't even know if she's going to live or die. The pressure that she must have been under is unimaginable. And she maintains composure. And, and she's thinking. And, and she happened to think of this verse in the book of Proverbs. 
That doesn't make sense. So Rabbi Hoshua says, it wasn't because she was proficient in the entirety of Proverbs and she knew every single verse of Proverbs or lived by all of King Solomon's Proverbs necessarily. This was something that the kids spoke about, something that she absorbed, a lesson, a Torah lesson she absorbed growing up in a Jewish home. So Rashi says, what does that mean? She heard, she heard the kids speaking like this. It's a Jewish home. They speak about Jewish things. They heard it from their parents. How many things do we hear from Bubbies or Zadies? You heard it from an old Jewish grandmother. And you find out, hey, that's a verse. <laughs> I remember hearing things from my grandmothers, realizing later, as I got older, hey, that's like a, that says in the Gemara. That's a verse. Had she know? And neither of my grandmothers were proficient in Talmud study. How did they know? I don't know. They heard it from their father or their mother. It was a thing that was talked about in what we call a Yiddish home. A child who's raised in a Jewish home hears Jewish ideas. Because so many of the concepts of the Gemara and the scripture are part of the fabric of everyday banter. So Esther learned at home, there's this Jewish idea. And the Jewish idea, which is pretty universal today, comes from Proverbs. And the idea is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Feed him bread. Vigoymer etc. So it's interesting. This verse is quoted with an etc. Rabbi Yeshua's verse is quoted with an v'goymer. Uh, but the verse that Rabbi Eliezer quotes doesn't have an etc. Doesn't have a v'goymer. And uh, the commentaries tell us that's because you're supposed to keep reading. Esther wasn't quoting a verse, but she knew the idea. The verse continues to read it says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him bread. And if your enemy is thirsty, great. Then you should give him water to drink. That is to say, even though it is our natural inclination to try and exact vengeance, Solomon said, resist the temptation. Help him instead. Why? He said, because it's as if you're raking coals upon his head. How so? Well, his knowledge that he's now become dependent on you or owes you a favor because he was hungry and you fed him and you repaid his evil with kindness. It's kind of humiliating. And, I mean, the rest of the verse is about God repaying you. But as our rabbis put it, the business of God repaying you isn't relevant here because, you know, God's gonna not going to repay Esther for being nice to a monster, to a mass murderer, to a, to a Haman. But, yeah, you just, just um, nip the problem in the bud. The even Ezra, he explains the verse like this. He says, Gecholim. Why are you heaping coals on his head? He says, Because when he remembers his hunger and the food, 
his thirst and the drink you provided. Tisafeno, it's as if you, like you burned him. You kind of eliminated the problem, nipped him in the bud. So Esther says, listen, this is an enemy and I have to eliminate him. And the best way to keep him at bay is to make him owe me one. Esther can't afford to alienate Haman right now, as we're going to hear in a few moments. So as uh, somebody said, uh, Skippy, you're like moving ahead. We're going to get there. <laughs> you're moving into Rabbi Meir's teaching. Patience. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Why is she doing that? The Gemara now continues and gives us yet another reason. Rabbi Meir, Oimer, Rabbi Meir says, Kedei shelo yital eitzo, the yimroid, so that he doesn't get some ideas and rebel. What does this mean? Why would he do that? The yimroid b'melech, the head upon which the crown rests, ever rests uneasy. Incidentally, it's a little historical fact that Ahasuerus was actually assassinated a number of years later when his son Darius is a boy. So eventually, they did rebel against him as many of the despotic monarchs of yesteryear had their just desserts served to them. So Rashi tells us, Why would he be successful? Rashi says something incredible. Because his star was rising. He seemed to be doing very, very well. The Mepharshim add an interesting nuance here. It's not just that he was doing well. The Jewish people really did sin. And from heaven, it was decreed that he should be allowed to do what he did. So Esther's like, I've got to be careful here. Haman is more powerful than he might even know. And if Haman knows that Ahasuerus is after his life, he'll do anything to survive. He's not more loyal to Ahasuerus than he is to preserving his own life. And it would do magic, wonders for him, if he could just turn the court against Ahasuerus. So Ahasuerus is in a precarious position and Esther can't alienate Haman because the last thing she needs is her husband killed because if her husband's killed then she's rendered useless. First of all, she'll probably get killed too. And then how's she ever going to stop the decree? She actually needs the king to remain in his throne because he's the one who can stop the decree now and if he isn't king, the jig is up. So Esther's thinking not about Haman, but about Ahasuerus' welfare. She's got to keep him in power. The Gemara says there's another opinion. And the other opinion is, Rabbi Yehud the last thing she needed was him to figure out, hey, I think this lady's Jewish. That's all she needs. He'll eliminate her in a moment. And Ahasuerus, she'll kill his last wife, wouldn't even care. So she's got to do everything to look like a loyal Nazi supporter. 
She can't be identified as a Jewish just yet. What better way than curry favor with the Chancellor himself? That's, if you will, the best kind of camouflage. It's the most certain way for her to conceal her Jewishness until the right moment is going to arrive. Rebbe Nechemia says, Esther was very concerned about people relying on her. You have to have betochen, you have to have trust in Hashem. Don't say, oh, we're going to be fine. Then they'll stop praying. They prayed for three days because Esther asked them, but now they said, okay, well, we can relax. Trust in Hashem. That makes all the difference. To learn more about that, oh, please visit that series we're in the midst of. Live with certainty, learning to trust. The most powerful thing in the world is betochen. The Jewish people need to have betochen if they won't have betochen and trusting that Esther will save the day could end up being the very thing that undermines them. Somebody will hear from somebody. The queen just invited Haman to dinner. <gasps> she's a turncoat. She's a traitor. She's not here to help us. Now they're really going to daven. <laughs> this beautiful story told that a man came to the Maggid of Mizrach. He said, Rebbe, I'm very sick. I need you to pray. I need you to bless me. Maggid said, I, I can't, can't do that. I, I can't help you. What do you mean you can't help me? You're a Rebbe. You're a holy man. You can do whatever you want. God listens to your prayers. I, I can't help you. But he says, if you go and he names a distant village, you go there. There's a big doctor. Maybe he can help you. The man is buoyed by, okay, this good advice. If he's not getting prayers, at least he's got a good doctor. And I can rely on the doctor instead of the rabbi, instead of the holy rabbi. Goes to this village. It's like looking very funny. There's no university here, no hospital. He doesn't even see a municipal building. What kind of doctor? Finally, he meets somebody. He says, um, can you direct me to the big doctor? He says, big doctor? The man snorts. What kind of doctor? We don't even have a doctor in this village. And he says, well, what do you do when you get sick? He says, when we get sick, oh, we pray. And the man understood. To rely on a Rebbe to save your life or a doctor to save your life is counterintuitive. It doesn't work. At least, Torah-wise, it's counterintuitive. It's intuitive for people. We always want to rely on people. It's our biggest problem. You have to rely on Hashem. So Esther needs to make sure that the people don't spoil things for her. She needs to get a message out there that she seems on the surface to be in cahoots. The Gemara now tells us that there is yet another opinion. They'll think we have a sister, so to speak, in the palace, via Sichu, they'll turn away from the source of mercy, which is Hashem. Rabbi Yoisi says, She needs to keep him close. This is similar, but perhaps even more so, like keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Esther says, I got to keep him close. Rashi says, Maybe I can get him to trip. If he isn't there, how am I going to get him to do the wrong thing? I got to keep him as close as possible. I got to try every which way to exploit the moment 
that will make him look bad in front of the king's eyes. I've got to keep him close. Maybe, maybe God will see this and God will do the Jewish people a favor. This is a very hard answer to understand. Rashi says, God will feel that I too am bringing close the enemies of the Jewish people. But Hashem knows what Esther's thinking. So Rashi himself is kind of uncomfortable with that approach and therefore he offers us another Another way to understand those words, Inami, Hashem will see how I have to literally roll on the ground. I have to betray my loyalty. I have to ingratiate myself in front of this wicked, horrible person. Look what I'm doing. And in this way, to bring forth Hashem's mercy. I was thinking that there's a a similar exchange between another very, very holy woman and God. Her name is Rachel. And when the Beis HaMikdash is burning, just a short 70 years before this story, Avram, Sarah, Yitzchak, Rivka, Yaakov, Leah, they all come and they all pray. It's a, a, a long narrative in Medrash. The door is slammed in their faces. God doesn't listen to their prayers. But when Rachel Imenu comes, because the people are right there on the road and they're crying out and that stirs the soul because you have to go to the place where the tzaddik is buried and they cry out to Rachel, pray for us. And Rachel is stirred and her spirit comes before Hashem and she says, God, I looked the other way when my sister took my place. So you need to look the other way when they've devoted their love and spiritual adulation to a foreign God. And God accepts those prayers. So Rachel by denigrating herself by showing how much abuse she's prepared to take is almost kind of seeking to create a mirror image from Hashem. The Jewish people turned their backs on God. They were disrespectful to the nth degree. They had no trust, no betachen. But Esther says, look what I'm doing. It's almost as if asking Hashem to go beyond the proverbial call of duty. Something like that. Anyway, we continue. We continue now in the Gemara. The Gemara gives yet another answer. And the Gemara says, Where I am going to Make myself really friendly to him. It's going to look to the king like I have some kind of uh, dalliance, some kind of special relationship. And Esther says to herself, if I have to die, I'll die. I'll make the king think I'm having an affair with his prime minister. Esther wants it to look like she's in love with Haman. She wants it to look like she's having an affair. And she's prepared to die if it means Haman dies. Because if Haman dies, his decree dies with him. The Mepharshim talk about why that is, but I think it's pretty obvious. Rabbi Gamliel says, 
Melech Hafachfachon Hoyo. This was a king who kind of changed his mind constantly. By the way, I skipped the Rashi. Shiharag Huvihi Rashi says, Shiachshadeni HaMelech Mimenu, the king will be suspicious of me. Viyaharag Eshneinu, he'll kill us both. And Rashi goes on to say, Vichi Gozrik Zedev Amis, Chad Minayu Botlag Zedev. When a person makes a decree like that and then gets summarily executed, the superstition is it was because of this decree that he had set into motion. And so, along with him, his decree would die too. Melech hafachfachan, He can't be trusted, he can't be relied upon. I'll tell Achashverosh A, B, and C, he'll say, what? Kill Haman! Five minutes later, he'll say, what did I say? You should be killed instead. Amra, Shema Ucha Maybe I can coax him, I can convince him to kill him, Laharge. Ve'im la yehei mezuman. Maybe if I'm going to say he needs to be killed, I need to make sure it happens right there and then because he can change his mind later on. So I have to make sure he's right there so that we don't have a situation where where the hour passes and then the king changes his mind. So a whole slew of different reasons to what Esther was thinking. Now, it gets really, really interesting now. The Gemara says, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel said, we still need the man from Odin. Who is the man from Odin? The Tanya we learned in the Braisa. Rabbi Eliezer Amodoy Yomer, Kinosei B'Melech, Kinosei B'Sorim. Ha ha. She will cause jealousy on the king's behalf. The king will be jealous. Hey, why is he getting so much attention from my queen? And the other ministers will also be jealous. Why is only Achshverosh treating Haman so nicely? Why is the queen inviting only him to this party? She needs to make sure there's a tension between the entire royal court. So she singles him out, showers him with favor to make sure that everybody's jealous of him. Now, the words of Rabbi Gamliel are understood in two different ways. When he says you need to have the teaching of Rabbi Lazar Hamadai, some understand this to be referring only to the final answer, the answer of the jealousy, which we have to have jealousy on both ends. But others maintain that this actually to be, it has to be understood broadly speaking. Why? Because there's two issues here. Number one, why'd she invite him to dinner? Number two, why only him? So all of the reasons that we've talked about they don't really need a private dinner. The question isn't only why she invited the devil to dinner. The question is why she invited the devil to a private dinner. And the answer is because she wanted to make sure there was enmity in the court and that Haman didn't have any allies when the time would come. Now the Gemara does something very interesting. All of these are Tanoim. These are rabbis from the Mishnah. Um, I see Skippy asking, Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha is saying that Esther was willing to be killed with Haman in order that the decree would be annulled. Yes, Skippy, that's exactly right. Correct? Pretty incredible, eh? 
So the Gemara says, Abaya the Rava, who are rabbis from the Gemara, called Amoraim. The Omri Tervayu, they both said that this can be understood a little bit in a different fashion. It's not only with the various reasons that we heard what, what Esther was thinking, but rather they had a little bit of a different take on this. Rava Omar Rava says, Lifnei Shever Goin, before the fall, before the fall comes the pride. Proverbs 16, verse 18. So this is the way it is. This is the way it is, as the book of Mishlei tells us, that in order to make sure that Haman falls, and he falls hard, Esther's got to raise him up and make him extremely important and prominent. And only after he'll be important and prominent, pride goes before destruction. Pride goes before the fall, and light, a haughty spirit comes before the fall. So even if somebody's doing the right thing, if they have pride and haughtiness, it will lead them to a disaster. And now, is someone doing the right thing? Well, not per se, but the Jewish people have tragically earned this situation. So Esther has to make sure that Haman should be seen from heaven in the worst light possible. And she knows this Mishli idea that pride will be a person's undoing. So she's pumping up his ego, making him super arrogant. And now Abaya Varava Domrov Tavaya Abaya both said that this idea of the wicked's undoing which Esther believed would happen through a party, is evidenced in the 51st chapter of the prophecies of Jeremiah. In verse 39 it says, Bechumam oshes esmishtehim. Which means that in the midst of, of uh, their party comes all their undoing. That's where things get heated. And that's where they will ultimately fall. And that's what happened. Belshazzar, the erstwhile father-in-law of, of Achashverosh, was undone because he was hot, thirsty, got hammered, as they say, and in his drunkenness, that brought him down. So what's the difference between the sages of the Mishnah and the sages of the Gemara? I, I, didn't, I didn't see this anywhere, but I mean, this is just my thought. I could be wrong. You know, there's a, there's a beautiful um, talk from the Rebbe about the Gemara that discusses how we should view things that happen that seem to be bad. The Gemara tells us two approaches. Rabbi Nachum Ish Gamzu, he said, everything's for the best. And even when things seem to be horrible, he said, it's for the best. And it actually turned out for the best. So the story was that he was sent to Rome to argue the case of the Jewish people, and they gave him a box of jewels, and he was robbed. And instead of jewels, he now had earth, soil, stones, and he came with the soil and the stones, and the king wants to kill him. And all of a sudden, Eliyahu appears and says, hey, maybe this is the earth of Abraham's miraculous battle against the axis of evil in his day. And maybe the Jews are bringing you a miraculous weapon. So they take these stones and this earth to the 
to the war theater and miraculously <laughs> it turns into ballast missiles. So not only was it as good as jewels, it was far better. I mean, Rome didn't need Jewish jewels, but miraculous help for a war. Now you're talking. So it actually turned out to be much better. Not only it wasn't bad, it was better. Rabbi Akiva has a different story. He's traveling, and he wants a place to stay. Nobody lets him in, and so he's stuck there on a mountain. He's got his donkey that he rides. That was his Chevrolet. And then he's got a lamp, and he's going to study Torah, and he's got a rooster to wake him up because they haven't invented alarm, invent, alarm clocks yet, and he wants to wake up at the crack of dawn. And what happens is that a bobcat comes out of nowhere, devours the, 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 the donkey, and then, and then his rooster is eaten by another animal, and the wind blows at his lamp, and he's in the dark. And what happens is, in the morning, he discovers that the village he wanted to stay in was waylaid, attacked by bandits, and everybody was massacred. So Bekiva says, Aha, aha. So, kol mada of Rachmana, all the things God did, it was for the good. And the Rebbe once explained the difference between the two. He said that Nachemish Gamzu perceived in the bad happening something good. Rabbi Kiva said it was for the best. It wasn't good, but it would have been worse. And the Rebbe says that's the difference in the generations. Nachum is living in a higher generation, in a generation where their faith and their betochen is so powerful they can actually see how the bad is good. But Rabbi Kiva's time already, they can see whatever happens, happens for the best, even if it itself isn't good. Anyway, that's what I was thinking. So I thought to myself, the rabbis in the Mishnah were so intuitive, they could actually know what Esther was thinking. Whereas Abayi and Verova aren't talking about what Esther's thinking, but they're just giving general ideas. Esther, uh, in other words, here they're pinpointing what exactly was Esther's strategy. And it's very specific. Whereas the rabbis of the Gemara living at a later age, it's overarching, generally. Broadly speaking, pride goes before the fall. Broadly speaking, bringing wicked people to a party and getting them drunk is typically going to work in your favor. So it's, it's a little bit, um, if you will, it's, it's less specific, maybe less insightful. You know, the, you're just, you're, they're just like general statements. And here is the most extraordinary part of the Gemara. And this really, my friends, to me, knocks it out of the park. What we're about to learn now is absolutely incredible. The Gemara says, Ashkechei Rabba Baravua Lelio Anavi. Rabba Baravua met Elio. And there was times Rabba Baravua is a man who has various rendezvous with Elio Anavi. Amalei said, uh, Elijah, tell me, Kiman Chazia Esther, what was Esther really thinking? What did she see? What, was, what did she envision? What was her strategy of the Hachi that she did this? You know what Elio said? Amalei said, she was thinking all those things. Every single one of those things she had in mind. That's amazing. <laughs> You're talking about a person who hasn't eaten for three days, has received news that her entire nation is about to be annihilated has the weight of the world on her shoulders, quite literally, and then gets a 
shot of cold water when Achashverosh says, don't come with any Jewish stuff. And she's got her wits together. And literally in a nanosecond, for all these reasons, she says, of course, the king and Haman could come to dinner. So first of all, it opens our eyes to who Esther was. Almost like an, an unparalleled ability to function and to think with such wisdom, with such insight. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I, I, I can't even think of another person in history. Astounding. But here is the most important message of all. Esther has perfect faith in Hashem. She trusts Hashem. She places her betochen in Hashem. And many people think that betochen says to you, you do your part. In the end, God's going to make it happen. By the way, that's exactly what happens. Because what's about to happen after this is the king gets awoken. There's a royal insomnia. Haman has no idea and he walks right into a trap. Esther couldn't have known that. That's where the miracles really start. In fact, the Balkorah raises his voice up at that point. So the miracles didn't even start yet. And yes, Esther is successful. For which one of these reasons is she successful? Actually, possibly none of the above. She's successful because Hashem arranges her to, for her to be successful. But here's the point. Betochen doesn't mean to sit back, relax, and let God do the work. Betochen means you have to be thinking like 60. Your mind has to be working and you have to be thinking about every possible angle. Do everything that's necessary. Esther is sheer brilliance, genius. She's thinking about all these things. She's doing everything she can because that's what Hashem says in His Torah to do. You do your part. Your part doesn't mean a lackluster, half-hearted attempt. It means you pour every ounce of wherewithal, every iota of imagination and strategy. Esther's brilliant. And she musters every ounce of her IQ before she speaks. And she has all these things in mind. And in the end, it's not because of any of these things that happen. But she did her part. That's when you can have betachar, my friends. When you do everything you possibly can. Cover every base. Make sure that you've addressed every angle. Then you can say, I did my part. Now Hashem does His. An incredible lesson whose importance, I think, really cannot be overemphasized. This is the essence of what betochen really means. It doesn't exonerate you. It doesn't put you on easy street. It doesn't mean that you rely on God and do nothing. It means you do everything. But you don't rely on your efforts. You do your very darnest, your absolute best, and then you place it 
in the hands of Hashem Yisbarach. And Esther was wildly successful. We celebrate Purim every year, remembering that great miracle. And we should think about the important lesson that this teaches us in doing the very best we can in every situation, and then relying on HaKadosh Baruch Hu to make the miracles happen. Thanks so much for joining. I appreciate your participation. This will be weekly now, Bezrat Hashem. Tom's Talmudish will continue at this time, and I hope that you'll be back, and together we will listen and learn from Esther and from the words of the Megillah, which continue to uplift, inspire, and to educate us in today's day and age. And as we speak of these miracles that were visited upon us in yesteryear, we pray that Hashem's Hashgocha El Yoyna, Divine Providence, continue to aid us, and that Be'ezras Hashem, we will always be able to hear good news and to share good news and to see the miracles unfold in real time, hopefully with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheira, will be Amenu Amen. Thank you again for joining. Please like, share, and if you haven't yet, subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Agatenacht, Laila Tov.